The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Previously on Breakdown. Probably a couple times a week something comes up and you know somebody's talking about injustice and it, I'm thinking oh you have no idea about injustice you don't know about Devanya in Devanya's case now the state can make the argument and I think they did in Devanya's case that he could have been a co-defendant this evidence doesn't mean he didn't participate well that wasn't the evidence at trial he wasn't tried as a participant he was tried as the as the shooter and the evidence discovered is very strong evidence. If it doesn't prove his innocence, it's very strong evidence of his of his innocence, particularly when you factor in Hercules Brown and his record and you know and, and his character and the crimes that he's committed. When you when you add that to the DNA evidence, I mean, you know. I don't want to be forty years old in prison. I don't want to be in prison. I don't want to trust nobody anymore. This 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 place is just it's miserable, and I'm tired of being in prison for something I didn't do. I'm tired of having to prove something that for something that I didn't do. I want to go home. I want somebody to say, hey, you know, this guy is innocent, and that's it. I just want somebody to apologize for me and just, you know, hey, free this guy. Leave him alone. That's the only thing I ask for. Hello there. I'm Bill Rankin, legal affairs reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to Breakdown. We have a special episode for you. Or rather, we have the long-delayed final episode of Season 4, Murder Below the Nat Line. That's because Devanya Inman is finally a free man. Season 4 had six episodes. If you haven't listened to them, I strongly recommend you do so before listening to the rest of this one. It's quite a case. It's tragic on many, many levels. It also has some unexpected twists and turns. There are witnesses at trial who look over at the jury box and realize one of the jurors had paid them for sex. The district attorney who prosecuted the case would go to federal prison for lying to FBI agents about having sex with a confidential informant. There's also the stunning revelation of a DNA test. Okay, that's all I'll say about that. Just please give those episodes a listen. In my decades of covering courts in Georgia, I've seen horrific injustice. But this case is in a class by itself. It has been more than four years since I last talked to you about Devanya Inman in August 2017. And things were looking pretty grim for him. Really grim, actually. Let me give you a recap of this extraordinary case. At around 2 o'clock in the morning on September 19, 1998, Donna Brown walked out of the Taco Bell in the South Georgia town of Adel. She was the night manager and was carrying the night's receipts, about $1,700 in cash. 
She never made it to her car in the parking lot. She was killed with a single shot through her right eye. Her Monte Carlo was later found across Interstate 75 in the parking lot of a shuttered Pizza Hut. A homemade mask, believed to have been worn by Brown's killer, lay under the driver's seat of her car. Brown was a single, 40-year-old mom. She had a seven-year-old son. She also had two sisters who loved her. She was a wonderful person and a caring person and a very loving mother, a loving sister. One of her sisters is Patsy Carrington. She cared about her family. Her family was very important to her. And it's just, it was just devastating to our whole family that uh, she's not here no more. Devanya Inman, Vanya to his family and friends, was charged with Brown's murder and prosecutors wanted the death penalty. Although there was no physical evidence tying Inman to the crime, the jury found him guilty. Jurors did not sentence him to death, though, largely because the murder weapon was never found. Instead, he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Four witnesses essentially did Inman in. One was Larissa Chapman, She worked at the Taco Bell. She told police she saw Inman hiding in the bushes before the restaurant closed that night. But she later recanted that statement. She said she told police what they wanted to hear so they'd leave her alone. There was also Marquetta Thomas. She was the sister of Inman's girlfriend. She told police that Inman had talked about committing an armed robbery. She also said she saw Inman with a wad of cash the day after the Taco Bell robbery. But, like Chapman, She said that was untrue. She says she falsely fingered Inman because she didn't like him and, she said, because he'd been mistreating her sister. That's the crazy thing. A lot of people fabricated and made up stuff, but it doesn't seem like anybody is willing to step forward and say, hey, I lied. Like, before the trial went forth, I tried to take my testimony back, my statement. It's like they wouldn't let me. I was like, look, I lied. I made it all up. No, no, you didn't. How are you going to tell me? Yes, I did. I made it up. And they just would not accept that. Then there was the jailhouse snitch, Kwame Spaulding. When the state's case is weak, it often comes up with a jailhouse snitch, an inmate who will claim the defendant confessed to him while the two were behind bars. Sometimes what the snitch tells the jury is true. But sometimes the snitch's testimony is devastating because the cops have helped him invent a story. And it's always a good story, a story that seems to prove the prosecution's case. Kwame Spaulding told a good story about Devanya Inman, and it was devastating. He testified that when he and Inman were cellmates, Inman told him he'd committed the Taco Bell murder. But Spaulding would later say, that was a lie. Three key witnesses, three recantations. Okay, I was just basically saying, since you the judge, though, you know, I was just saying in front of the court that Basically, everything was called Hearst. I mean, he, he was telling me he'll let me go home and just telling me stuff to say about it. We don't want to get that day if you want to. Oh, all right, yeah. I talk, to, I talk to them. Yeah, I don't, I don't know nothing about that dude. You know, we was just other than he was my cellmate. And finally, there was Virginia Tatum. Tatum was standing in the gloom around 2 a.m. in the parking lot of Adele's Howard Johnson's. She was waiting for bundles of newspapers that she'd deliver across town. Tatum testified she saw Donna Brown's Monte Carlo drive by, headed toward the Pizza Hut parking lot. And she said she saw Inman inside the victim's car. In exquisite detail, 
She said Inman had a goatee and wore a white tank top with ribbed fabric. She also said he wore a gold necklace and dark pants. Yes, the driver was seated in the car in the middle of the night, and Tatum saw his pants? She later collected a $5,000 reward for her testimony. But the jury did not hear what Lee Grimes later told me. Grimes was standing next to Tatum that night. He was waiting for his own bundles of newspapers to deliver. He said it was simply too dark for Tatum to have been able to identify Inman or anybody else. I don't think if you put a gun to my head, I could tell you where it was a black person, a green person, or a purple person. I don't think you could have seen him and in that light. wearing a, a chain. Especially a month after it happened. When I tracked Tatum down, she stuck to her story. So many people have basically accused me of lying for years. <laughs> and it's not what happened. And I've just kept it to myself because I kept it to myself and I didn't lie. I saw him. At trial, Inman's lawyers tried to present testimony from two witnesses who would have claimed that Hercules Brown told them he killed Donna Brown. Hercules and Donna were not related, but both of them worked at the Taco Bell. The defense said they also had a third witness, a co-worker at Taco Bell. She would testify that Hercules Brown tried to talk her into helping him commit a robbery. But Judge Buster McConnell, who presided over the trial, would not let the defense's three witnesses testify about Hercules Brown. The judge said there was no evidence to support what they were going to say. By the way, there was no evidence to support what many others said in court either. That's often the nature of witness testimony. The witness tells his or her story, and the jury decides whether to believe it. But not in this case. The judge wouldn't even let the jury hear these witnesses. It's important to note that when Inman went to trial, Hercules Brown was sitting in jail awaiting his own death penalty trial. He'd been charged with savagely beating two people to death with a baseball bat. They were William Bennett, who owned a local grocery store, and the store's cook, Rebecca Browning. Hercules Brown later pled guilty to those murders and was sentenced to life in prison without parole. He was also suspected of a home invasion and murder in Adel, in which the killer repeatedly stabbed the resident and bashed his head with a TV. That victim was convenience store clerk Shalesh Patel. That murder case remains unsolved. Well, Inman lost his trial, then he lost his initial appeals. But he continued to profess his innocence and, years later, the Georgia Innocence Project took up his case. And one day, when looking through boxes and files in the county clerk's office in Adel, Amy Maxwell, then executive director of the Georgia Innocence Project, made an important discovery. A key piece of physical evidence in Donna Brown's murder was the homemade mask found in her car. In the years after Inman's trial, the mask had apparently disappeared and was long believed to have been lost. But when Maxwell opened a box in the clerk's office, there it was. After some wrangling, Maxwell finally got approval to send the mask to the GBI crime lab for a DNA test. And they run it in the database and it comes up to Hercules Brown. And, um, you know, of course, at that time, Hercules Brown is in prison for another murder. And so they think, well, you know, what, did we do this right? So they, you know, run it again. And sure enough, it's the profile of Hercules Brown. I mean, it is, that is it. Armed with this new evidence, she filed an extraordinary motion for a new trial. 
The hearing was before Judge McConnell. He is the same judge who would not admit testimony by witnesses who would have implicated Hercules Brown in the Taco Bell killing because McConnell said there wasn't evidence supporting that testimony. Now, Inman's new lawyers had such evidence, the DNA match on the mask. Months after the hearing, on October 31st, 2014, McConnell denied the motion. He refused to give Inman a new trial. So Inman's lawyers appealed McConnell's decision to the Georgia Supreme Court, and this was a discretionary appeal. The state high court can decide to hear it or not hear it. And, amazingly, the court said it did not wish to hear Inman's appeal. Clearly I screwed this case up because I just can't believe we were not able to persuade, if not the judge, and of course it was hard to persuade the judge that heard the trial. Although he heard all that crappy evidence, you'd think he was maybe thinking, maybe I I can have a second shot at justice. But then not to be able to convince the state Supreme Court to hear it, I, I just feel like, what did we do wrong? What did I do wrong? I don't blame anyone else for this. It's like, what did I do wrong? This case haunts me. That seemed to slam shut the prison door on Inman. But then he caught a break. A large Atlanta law firm, Troutman Sanders, now called Troutman Pepper, agreed to take on his case free of charge. And that's pretty much where we left you four years ago. I was first made aware of Inman's case by Atlanta lawyer Jessica Gable Sino. She found out about Inman's case from the Georgia Innocence Project after Judge McConnell denied the new trial. At the time, Sino was a Georgia State University law professor. Soon enough, she and some of her students had taken up Inman's case to try to win him a new trial. As for when that last breakdown episode aired on Inman's case? I would say at the, at the end of 2017, we were really sort of facing a bit of a brick wall in terms of many of the issues that seemed to be the most favorable for Devanya had already been litigated in a, a certain, you know, fashion, uh, especially with the emergency motion for new trial. And so it didn't look good for him in terms of getting a another opportunity for a court to hear his case. Just the same, in January 2018, the Troutman Pepper lawyers filed a civil lawsuit on Inman's behalf. It sought to overturn his conviction on a number of grounds. One, he is actually innocent. Another, There was prosecutorial misconduct in that the state withheld critical information from the defense. And Inman's lawyers performed so badly he was denied the right to a fair trial and a worthwhile appeal. The prosecutorial misconduct claim cited what we had uncovered in the Breakdown podcast. That is, the September 2000 arrest of Hercules Brown, well before Inman's trial in June 2001. When Adel police arrested Brown outside a local supermarket, they found in his car a firearm, cocaine, and, wait for it, a homemade mask similar to the one found in Donna Brown's car. I'd found this information inside the court file for Hercules Brown's case involving the Bennett's grocery murders. 
So when Inman's new lawyers heard about this on Breakdown, they made it one of their primary claims. That truly is what changed the direction of the case for Devanya because, you know, the ski mask had already been litigated. The DNA belonging to Hercules Brown had already been litigated and, and a court wouldn't have the ability to just look at his case based on those things alone. Um, and so being able to tie that as a Brady violation and then also bringing in the ineffective assistance of counsel um, from his prior attorney really is what propelled this case forward. Cena was referring to the U.S. Supreme Court decision Brady versus Maryland. It held the prosecution must turn over to the defense any evidence that might help exonerate the defendant. The lawsuit filed on Inman's behalf was a writ of habeas corpus, which in Latin means produce the body. It was filed against the warden of the prison where Inman was incarcerated, Hayes State Prison in North Georgia's Chattooga County. The case was assigned to Chief Judge Christina Cook Graham. Her father was Bobby Lee Cook, who died last year. In his heyday, Cook was one of the premier trial lawyers in America, and perhaps Georgia's most famous attorney. Judge Graham would eventually issue a number of critically important rulings in the case, all favorable to Inman's cause. Her first was to reject a request by the State Attorney General's office to dismiss the new habeas corpus case altogether. She also agreed to allow Inman's new lawyers to take sworn testimony from Hercules Brown where he was being held in prison. The State Attorney General's office appealed Judge Graham's order. For the life of me, I couldn't understand why the state AG's office went this route. I know that prosecutors and lawyers in the AG's office are advocates for the state, but they're also ministers of justice. And anyone taking a close look at Inman's case could see the many problems with it. But the AG's office pressed on, essentially giving the Georgia Supreme Court yet another chance to reject Inman's claims. But this time, that didn't happen. In the unanimous decision issued September 19, 2019, the court allowed Inman's case to go forward. The state Supreme Court declined to hear the AG's appeal of Judge Graham's order, just as it declined to hear Inman's appeal five years before. But there was more, much more. There were concurring opinions written by two justices. Writing one was Justice David Namius. He's a former U.S. attorney and oversaw terrorism cases at the U.S. Justice Department after 9-11. What he wrote was unlike anything I've ever read in covering the justice system since the early 90s. I asked Sino to read a slightly condensed version of it. Okay, so this is Justice Namias' concurrence. I've gone back to review the record regarding Inman's extraordinary motion for new trial. I have grave doubts about the trial court's order denying that motion and I regret that this court denied Inman's application for a discretionary appeal of that order in 2014. Unfortunately, I have not found a way within the confines of law for us to undo our decision on the extraordinary motion at this point. But this court is not the only source of justice in this state. Everyone involved in our criminal justice system should dread the conviction and incarceration of innocent people. During my decade of service on this court, I have reviewed over 1,500 murder cases in various forms. 
In those cases, trial courts, habeas courts, and this court through appellate review have occasionally granted new trials to defendants who appeared not to be guilty of crimes of which they were convicted. Of the multitude of cases in which a new trial has been denied, Inman's case is the one that causes me the most concern that an innocent person remains convicted and sentenced to serve the rest of his life in prison. The attorney general should decide whether it is really in the interest of justice for the state of Georgia to continue fighting to block discovery regarding Inman's claims and asserting procedural defenses to prevent a hearing on the merits of those claims, and indeed, whether the state should continue resisting Inman's efforts to obtain a new trial. No one can say for sure what the result of a new trial would be, but with the new evidence that has been uncovered since Inman's original trial, including but not limited to the DNA of Hercules Brown and not of Devanya Inman, on the homemade mask found in the murder victim's stolen car, there is no doubt that a new trial would be very different than the one in which Inman was found guilty. Let justice be done. Let justice be done. Just extraordinary. I mean, just, it, it's, it's eloquent, it's concise, but you feel from those words the weight of, you know, the court grappling with their earlier decision. Like, there, there is a true sense of regret of we, we may have gotten that one wrong and this man has been in prison all that much longer. And I feel like they're pretty much sending the state a message of stand down and just let this man get a new trial. Namius asked State Attorney General Chris Carr to personally review the case before going forward. In an exchange of emails with Carr's spokeswoman, I was told he would do just that. Chief Justice Harold Melton, who has since retired, also weighed in. He said he shared many of the concerns raised by Justice Namius. And he wrote, The evidence that potentially connects a different person other than Inman to the murder in this case raises some very troubling issues. Here's Sino again. And now the state AG's office, which has the power to step aside and you know, allow this process to go forward, allow at least an evidentiary hearing on the habeas case to, to determine whether he gets a new trial. You know, there is such a strong like, encouragement for the state AG to do the right thing. And, you know, they, they effectively would not, which, which is also remarkable that they, that's, they, they still can dug in on this in the face of that decision. With the case going forward, Inman's new lawyers set a date to take Hercules Brown's deposition in December 2020. But when a prison official asked Brown to come out of his cell to answer questions, he refused. At a hearing last June, Inman's lawyers asked Judge Graham to draw what's called an adverse inference against Brown because of what he did. That Brown had incriminated himself by refusing to be questioned about Donna Brown's murder and Judge Graham agreed to draw that inference. This meant she was now proceeding under the assumption that Hercules Brown, not Devanya Inman, was the actual killer. So, absolutely yes, the writing seemed to be on the wall. And almost five months later, this past November 16th, Judge Graham found there had been a miscarriage of justice. She threw out Inman's convictions and granted him a new trial. 
This is Breakdown by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Ernie Suggs. And I'm Ned Ravone. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. You're listening to Breakdown, an exclusive podcast of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. For more information, including photos, court records, and video, go to ajc.com slash news slash breakdown. Also, please join our Breakdown Facebook group to meet our reporters and ask questions about our story. The judge's order described injustice on an astonishing scale, a massive failure by the people who prosecuted Inman and the people who defended him. At the heart of the order was the state's failure to let the defense know about the homemade mask found in Hercules Brown's car during his arrest outside the Adel supermarket. If this had been disclosed as exculpatory evidence, the order said, and I quote, it would have been independent, reliable, and admissible evidence tending to connect Hercules Brown to the murder, unquote. In short, the order said, the suppressed evidence deprived Inman a fair trial and undermined the court's confidence in the trial's outcome. Judge Graham concluded, The court recognizes that the miscarriage of justice exception is reserved for extraordinary circumstances and is to be sparingly applied. But this is an extraordinary case. So, what would happen next? The Attorney General's office could appeal once again. It had 30 days to make that decision. If it did, that could mean Inman's case could be tied up in the court system for months, if not years. If the state didn't appeal, Would the new Cook County District Attorney retry Inman for Donna Brown's murder? Everyone following the case had December 16th marked on their calendars. That was the deadline for the state to file its appeal. And the state AG's office waited until that afternoon to let Inman's legal team know it was not going to appeal Judge Graham's decision. I suspect I know one reason why the Attorney General's office didn't file an appeal. David Namius is now the court's chief justice. He's a brilliant jurist and is always extremely well prepared during oral arguments. He can skewer lawyers with pointed questions if he disagrees with their positions. It's quite something to see. He's almost turned it into an art form. I certainly would not want to be on the receiving end of that. So I wondered, could Paula Smith and Beth Burton, the two lawyers from the AG's office who fought to uphold Inman's conviction, be thinking the same thing? Sino thought so. You you could see question number one is, did you read our opinion from 2019? So 
No appeal was great news for Inman and his legal team. Then Tom Riley, the Troutman Pepper lawyer heading the litigation, called me and told me something that knocked my socks off. He had talked to the new Cook County District Attorney, Chase Studstill, and Studstill said he was going to present the county's chief judge with an order for him to sign the following Monday morning. It would dismiss the case against Inman and call for him to be released from prison as soon as possible. When Riley told me this, I just said, wow, wow, wow. It also made me think, here was a case that took way, way too long to get resolved, way too long. Shoot, this was happening seven years after Hercules Brown's DNA was found on the mask, four years after Breakdown shined a light on it. But then, all of a sudden, everything seemed to be falling into place. That Monday afternoon, I met AJC photographer Curtis Compton in the parking lot of Augusta State Medical Prison, about a two-hour drive from Atlanta. That's where Inman was now incarcerated. We were soon told we had to leave the prison grounds, even the prison's large parking lot. Our guard told us we could park on the other side of the four-lane highway next to the prison, so we drove over and parked on the shoulder as cars whizzed by. We had to wait a few hours, so as we sat there, I told Curtis all about the case. He didn't know much about it, but he reacted the way most people do. He got angry when hearing about all the times Inman had been denied a new trial. While we waited, more and more people began driving out of the prison and parking by our cars next to the highway. There were Inman's brother and his son Trey and his granddaughter, Alana. There were other relatives. There were members of the Georgia Innocence Project and reporters for The Intercept, which aired a podcast on Inman's case after Breakdown did. Only Inman's mom and stepfather, Dinah and David Ray, and his lawyers were allowed to greet him on prison property when he walked outside. And shortly before four o'clock, he finally did. He was immediately embraced by Dinah and David. Upon seeing this, one of Devanya's brothers decided to cross the highway, walk onto prison grounds against orders. There, the two brothers embraced. Devanya's son, Trey, soon did the same thing. It was quite a sight. A short while later, they all got in their cars and drove over to see us on the other side of the highway. There was a lot of hugging, a lot of tears, a lot of celebration. After a few minutes, I walked up and shook Inman's hand. I'm Bill Rankin, line of conversation. How are you? I then asked him the most obvious question. How's the feel? Inman said nothing. He was shaking a bit. He just stared out into space, as if in shock. He was completely at a loss for words. Then, two women standing behind answered for him. Unreal. Unreal. A few minutes later, members of the Georgia Innocence Project walked up. They handed Inman a briefcase with a laptop computer and a backpack filled with his favorite snack food, some masks, hand sanitizer, a jacket, some small gifts, and a $2,000 Visa gift card. Something to get you started, they said. Such a massive team effort, really. And the Georgia Innocence Project also paid for Inman's trip back home to California where he'll receive exoneree support services from nonprofit organizations. I then looked over and saw Tom Riley. 
He and his team of lawyers from the Troutman Pepper firm had successfully navigated through all the complicated legal procedural hoops to make this moment happen. Lawyers rarely ever get a moment like this. I'm just as happy as I could be for Devanya and his family and just so pleased that this day has finally arrived. It's long overdue, but it's finally here. And feel privileged to have been able to play a part in it. Ever since I first interviewed Inman's mom, Dinah Ray, about five years ago, we've stayed in touch. It's been a great relationship. And I finally got to meet her and her husband, David, in person during the hearing last June before Judge Graham. And here on the side of the road, Dinah and David looked to be in a bit of shock, too, with tears streaming down their faces. I can breathe now, Bill. For 23 years, I felt like my life was on hold. Before leaving to go write my story for the next day's paper, I tried one more time to get a comment from Inman. Surrounded by family and friends, he did speak, though in such a hushed tone, I could barely hear him. I told him about It's been a long time. And I know you can do whatever He said, I'm happy. It's been a long time. A week later, I reached out to Chase Studstill. He was appointed district attorney of the Alapaha Judicial Circuit eight months ago. It was his decision to dismiss the case against Inman. Four years ago, I repeatedly called Studstill's predecessor, Dick Perryman, to talk about the case. On two occasions, I went by his office and left handwritten notes. He never once called me back. At one point, he emailed a statement, but it made little sense to me. To my surprise, Studstill said he'd be happy to talk. Studstill worked at a nearby public defender office before becoming DA, and his father practiced law in the area for more than four decades. Studstill said he was already familiar with Inman's case. This was a case that, I'm going to say baggage, but it, it had notoriety down here before, you know, mainstream media picked it up. Studstill also knew, once Judge Graham signed the order in June, saying she was proceeding under the assumption Hercules Brown was the killer, the case could land back in his office. Then there was Justice Namius's extraordinary opinion. So, Studstill began reading some of the old case files. There were about 18 boxes full of them. He even listened to the podcasts on Inman's case and read old news stories about it. During this whole time, it's been the AG's office's case until something changed. Well, when that change came in the habeas order, it was fall back in my court. By then, Studstill had formed an opinion. Our Constitution's a, a crux to me. It's it's core of what I do, and um, good, bad, or ugly, we have, to, we have to respect it. It was pretty clear Mr. Inman did not get a fair trial. But one, one thing that struck me odd in the beginning and getting up to speed was the the conviction rested solely on eyewitness testimony and statements. Just reviewing the evidence itself, it was a case built on that solely. You didn't have a smoking gun. You, you 
didn't have a video camera picture of him driving in her car. I mean, you just you didn't have anything uh, solid like that. It was all on opinion or observation from these witnesses. Mainly, you had every witness involved in the case more or less recanting or showing that they were incentivized to, to testify the way they did. The, the only person to my knowledge that didn't change their story or recant or just say they think they got it wrong at the time would be the, the newspaper lady. She uh, she was pretty adamant with her story, but <laughs> you know as well as I do, she had some incentive in testifying the way that she did. That's an, that's an issue in itself. Uh, that's by, I mean, that's just all over itself. Of course, Studstill is referring to the $5,000 reward, and he went even further. The, the details that she gave on the description were just kind of, it's hard pill to swallow considering the, the circumstances, the time of day, and, and it wasn't just, saw a black male driving a vehicle. She, she gave some details, I will say with the facial features, the distance, the time of day, the circumstances, that just, you try to be rational in everything you do, and that just that testimony wasn't rational, rational to me. Stud still said his ultimate decision was a relatively easy one. There's three options. You retried the case, you null-prossed the case and dismissed it, moved on, or you tried to work out some sort of plea agreement. Well, I knew that the plea agreement would, would never be an option with, with Mr. Riley and Mr. Inman just in my heart, didn't even convey any type of plea rec, didn't think that that was appropriate. As for a retrial? 23 years have gone by. There, there wasn't any evidence left to do a retrial. You look at it from my end, of, well, what have I got to present a case to a jury and, and try to retry this man? But there wasn't anything. As for charging Hercules Brown? You got the circumstance that he worked with her, uh, with Miss Donna Brown at the Taco Bell. So that, that's a you know, that might go towards a motive or means or an opportunity, maybe. Uh, working in the same restaurant might be familiar with how the bank drops are done at night, that kind of thing. But then you go to the mask, and that's what everybody wants to talk about, the mask. The DNA, is, his mask has his DNA. Well, that's true, but the mask in and of itself, just being in the car, just shows that there's a mask with his DNA in the car. Studstill also said that even though the DNA evidence is powerful, there's a chain of custody issue with that mask. There's no doubt the mask was left under the driver's seat. You can see it there in police photos taken of the car where it was found in the Holiday Inn parking lot. But for some unknown reason, police failed to take it into evidence. It was only recovered after the car was returned to Donna Brown's family and they found the mask and reported it to police. You know, I, I don't want to rule out ever bringing charges against him for crimes, this crime of Donna Brown's murder or the Patel murder, but at you know, this time there's, there's nothing this office has to take any steps forward. Just before the new year, I arranged a virtual interview with Devanya, Dinah, and David. They were back at Dinah and David's home in Sacramento, California. Dinah related how the first morning she woke up after Devanya had been released, she shot up out of bed and ran to Devanya's room to make sure he was really there and this wasn't a dream. It was quite something to see Devanya's love for his parents and their love for him. 
Devanya repeatedly put both of his arms around his parents' shoulders as he talked, and they hugged him back with wide grins. It was exciting to hear them. I think I celebrated it then with them. We kind of celebrated it then because we just knew that it had to be real, but at the same time, we was kind of fearful too that we didn't know what Georgia would do. That's Devanya saying what happened when his lawyers called him after Judge Graham threw out his convictions and granted him a new trial. As for when he found out he was actually going to be released? Oh, I found out from, from my attorneys again, and Tom, he told me, and everything Tom says, I believe. <laughs> and Tom, Jessica, and Tiffany, you know, Maida, you know, anything any one of them says, I just, I believe him. I mean, because they ain't gonna let me down. They just was, they I really appreciate them a lot. He's referring to Tom Riley of Troutman Pepper and attorneys Jessica Sino, Tiffany Bracewell, and Maida Muhich. For years, they, along with lawyer Michael Williford, had been doing all they could to set Inman free. We covered that in season four's prior episodes. Here are David and Dinah describing the day their son was finally released. We were just like kind of jumping up for joy. We was, I mean, we was actually driving down there and we was like so excited because we was coming down regardless. And we was just so excited. It was, it was overwhelming to see him come out. And then when I finally saw him coming out, then I knew it was real, you know, so just grateful to everybody you know that supported him it was a long time coming long time here's david again with devanya chiming in it's like i'm living a good dream and it's like i don't want to be woke up and every time i see my son i have to give him a hug because yeah. i want to make sure that he's he's out here he's he's here for real yeah, dad gets up at night. <laughs> dad gets up at night and just peeps in on me. <laughs> he gives me a dap. Dap. Mom does it too. She just peep in and just to see if I'm there. Devanya is now 43 years old. That means he spent more than half of his life, 23 years, in prison. Returning to society, the free world, well, as you can imagine, it isn't easy. But he did recently get his driver's license. And after more than two decades of prison food, there's also this. You go outside to the garage. When I open up the refrigerator <laughs> the other night, I say, I'm in heaven. It's been, it's been hard, but, it's, but I'm doing it one day at a time. I've been taking it one day at a time, but it's hard. But it's just, I have to get used to everybody again and new people and life and the streets and masks we're all trying to um, mend our broken hearts and trying to adapt to the new normal so but like Devanya said we're taking it one step at a time before we signed off wishing each other a happy new year i asked Devanya about all those who'd gone to bat for him over the years I would give my soul up for the ones that helped me. 
and I forgive the ones that didn't because you have to in, in order to go to heaven. This concludes, finally, the fourth season of Breakdown. If you do an internet search for AJC, my name, Bill Rankin, Devanya Inman, and Free Man, you'll find a link to my story on Devanya's release. There you can see the great photos taken by my colleague, Curtis Compton, of Inman's first moments outside the prison. Also, if you go to the Georgia Innocence Project's website, you can find a link to donate money on MightyCause.com to Devanya Inman to help him get back on his feet. I'm sure he needs all the help he can get. Please stay safe and be well during this pandemic. Get your vaccines and your booster too. Please, please do so for all of us. And if you want to support local journalism, especially my newspaper, subscribe to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution or to our website, AJC.com. Until next time, I'm Bill Rankin. Thanks so very much for listening to Breakdown. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Breakdown, hosted by Bill Rankin, produced by Jay Black and Bill Rankin, edited by Jennifer Brett and Jay Black, music by Bo Emerson and Billy Guin, sound design by Jay Black. Special thanks to Kevin Riley, Sean McIntosh, Leroy Chapman, Pete Corson, Richard Hallex, and Bert Roten. Please rate and review us on iTunes or your favorite download app. We also invite you to listen to the other seven seasons of Breakdown.